tomorrow at 8 o'clock. series that we started last week about the prophet Jonah, the book of Jonah. And if you remember from last week, we talked about how the book of Jonah is sort of uh, a different book than uh, maybe that we're used to reading in the Bible, right? The book of Jonah is um, sort of has a little bit of like funny stuff, things that are supposed to be like um, maybe things that you might not typically see in the Bible, things that you might not be completely always familiar with. So it's, it has a lot of kind of really interesting parts that I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to study. There we go. Okay, cool. And so today we're going to look a little bit, we didn't really talk too much about the book itself or actually the chapters or what was actually in the readings. We talked about mostly an introduction to it, what is the idea behind it, sort of one of the important uh, things that we uh, kind of can learn from it, but we didn't talk about exactly uh, parts of uh, the book itself. And if you remember, we talked a little bit about um, because it's a book that we know a lot about, because we think we know the story, we think to ourselves, okay, I know everything, so I've already learned this, so I don't need to learn it uh, in any different or better way. So um, today, I hope we can see a little bit of a, a more deeper part of um, of the book of Jonah. And we talked about last week how the book is sort of everything is upside down, right? The good guys are actually the bad guys, the bad guys are actually the good guys, um, and there's nobody is really kind of behaving according uh, to their stereotype. And all of this is sort of um, aimed at critiquing the worst tendencies that we have in our hearts and our minds, things like judgmentalism, uh, things like pride. And we're gonna see actually this week, uh, Jonah is suffering from spiritual apathy. Okay, so we're gonna talk about spiritual apathy. So this chapter is all about either being asleep uh, uh, or like kind of dozing off in my spiritual life, okay? Those of you that drive, have you ever, you know, you're on your morning commute and you're driving somewhere that you drive all the time and you, you kind of like get to your destination and you think to yourself, I can't remember what the last 10 minutes were like. I don't remember the, the, the things that I was doing, I don't remember the roads, I don't remember the sign, but here I am at the place that I'm at. You know, it's a pretty common uh, thing that happens to us because like our human body gets so like used to routine and things like that. And so it's really kind of amazing and a little bit scary that you were driving and going maybe 50 miles an hour and there was pedestrians and animals and bicycles and you're not, you know, you don't, you don't even know what's going on. You can't even remember kind of the direction that you went, but you know, you're at, you're at your destination. So I think that's something that we can sort of all relate to. And that's not even just actually with, with cars, right? We have that also kind of in our lives. Like sometimes when we are um, maybe doing anything that's sort of really routine, right? If I'm like maybe doing laundry or doing the dishes, all of a sudden I'm doing them and they say, wow, I didn't realize I finished. And you don't realize kind of what happened because it's just something that um, you just don't think a lot about. And unfortunately, this is not just some about how some of us maybe do our chores or how about some of us drive. It actually goes a little bit deeper than that. And this is the kind of dynamic that uh, Jonah is experiencing in chapter one. Okay, and that's what he's talking about. The book of Jonah is exposing for us. Some of us are sometimes perpetually in a, a state of disengagement, right? 80% of my life, I'm thinking to myself, man, where did the last week go? Or where did the last day go? Or where did the last few months go? And I'm not really thinking about the things that are happening to me. How many of us have this feeling even in our spiritual lives, right? If you've been a Christian your entire life, you know what it's like when, you know, my prayers are uh, fervent and the Word of God I feel like is speaking to me and I can hear God speaking to me in a very clear way. But then all of a sudden I feel not that way, 
feel like it's boring or I feel like it doesn't have the same, fe the same feeling coming to me or I feel like it's not as effective as it used to be. And you think to yourself, why did this happen? I don't know why it happened. There's lots of reasons why it happens. So sometimes it's sort of seasons in our life, right? I'm taken up by certain things, certain events, things that are happening to me. Maybe my life is, happens to be extra busy with certain things that are going on. But there's something real that's sort of been lost when I don't see any sort of vitality in my connection with Christ. And maybe some of us have maybe never experienced this before. Some of us, though, we may end up in that position, this sort of spiritual apathy, this sort of like, I don't feel as good about my prayer or I don't feel I can hear God's voice as I used to, could be because of some of the decisions that we've made. They may be small decisions, uh, maybe bad decisions, unwise decisions, uh, maybe some things that we could call compromises, and we justify those kind of things. And we find ourselves, you know, a couple of months down the road, and we say, well, how did I get to this point? How did I get here, right? And it's not really rocket science. It's like a, there's a slow process of sort of decisions that landed me in the place that I am to lead me to this spiritual apathy. And so just like being asleep at the wheel, all of a sudden you realize I'm at a different place than I thought I would be. How did I get here, right? This is an experience that we all have, and Jonah has this in, in chapter 1. And Jonah in chapter 1 is the portrait, picture-perfect portrait of spiritual apathy. It's showing us and explaining why and how and what's happening to us when we're asleep at the wheel spiritually. And what a tragedy it can be, okay? So maybe this, is, this lesson is not supposed to be like very uplifting, but it's really important for us uh, to see. So we'll watch um, how Jonah sort of was falling asleep in his spiritual life. If you remember, uh, back when we talked about last week, about what was Jonah doing, God said to him that the Ninevites have gotten really bad and their evil has reached up to me and it's, it's, it has to come to an end. I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh and tell them to repent and, or else I'm going to destroy them, right? So God wants to send his messenger to confront evil. And what does Jonah do? The first thing he does, he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. And he tried to go to Tarshish to flee from God. First, he has to go south. To flee from God, he goes south from where he is in Israel to this place called Joppa, and that's where he sort of gets into this uh, ship, right? It's a small detail, but it's sort of important, we can see. So in verse four, it says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. The ship was about to be broken up. And then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. So God is pursuing this person, Jonah, who has disobeyed him. So you might think to yourself, here it is again. God is making a command and somebody didn't follow the command. So God is trying to destroy this person. See how evil God is in the Old Testament. That's how some of us might think, right? But that's not actually what's going on. Remember the bigger picture. Why does God want to send Jonah to Nineveh? So he can bring repentance, so that they can be, find forgiveness, so that they can be rescued from their sin. It's God's mission to reach out to the people of Nineveh. And so he's pursuing Jonah out of love. Right, just like we talked about last week, the love of a parent. Remember I told the story about how like, your children might run out into the street because they want to go pet a dog, and you, you want them to pet the dog, you want them to have fun, but at the same time they're not looking, and so it's dangerous, so you stop them, right? So God is looking after these people in the same way. 
This is not sort of an angry and volatile God trying to squash the person, right? He's trying to look out for their benefits. So look, how do the sailors react when they see the storm and they see things going on? The mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. So God, in his love towards Jonah, is pursuing this disobedient prophet. And the sailors, look what the sailors are doing. Are the sailors asleep? No, the sailors aren't asleep. What are they doing? They're afraid. And every man is crying out to his own God. Right? And they're throwing their cargo. That's, by the way, that's the whole reason that they're on the ship, right? To ship things from one place to another. They're throwing out all their cargo. They're throwing out everything they have. And they're afraid. And they're praying to whoever they can think will answer them. First of all, they're alert enough to realize this is not a normal storm, right? They realize this is not a normal storm. Something is going on. That's why every person is afraid and every man is crying out to their God. You know, if they're sailors, they're used to having storms, right? Pretty common thing. But now they feel, okay, I need to do something different. This is special. This is something important. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to throw all this cargo and I'm very afraid. And you can imagine because they're sort of uh, polytheistic, that they're, they're, everyone is like, okay, I'll pray to my God, you pray to your God, and they're all praying to every God just to see if one of them will hopefully hear them so that they can be sort of saved from uh, the issue that is going on, right? What is Jonah doing there in this time? What is Jonah doing? Jonah's asleep, right? Jonah is asleep. It says, but Jonah had gone down to the lower parts of the ship, had laid down and was fast asleep. You remember, like I was saying in the beginning, the author of the book is trying to give us sort of a, 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 sort of a visual. He was in Israel, in the northern part of Israel, and he went down to go to Joppa. And then he goes into the boat and goes down into the bottom part of the boat to go to sleep. And then we'll see later, he goes down from out of the boat into the bottom of the sea, right? So Jonah is going down, 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 further and further and further, right? The religious man of God is slowly descending into a state of literal and spiritual slumber. He's asleep, right? It's very powerful that the, the, the author of the book is trying to make us pay attention. And he's showing us that Jonah's sin here is that, is that the sin that he committed, which was, what was the sin Remember we talked about last week? The sin that he committed was he didn't want to preach to Nineveh. Why? Was he afraid? No, he wasn't afraid. Why didn't he want to preach to Nineveh? He hated them. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to be better. Right? That was his sin. And so this sin led him to this sort of kind of numb, dead-end, unaware state, asleep at the wheel like we kind of talked about. So his failure, his sin, his choice, what does it do all of a sudden? His choice to run away, what does it do? It begins to make him descend into slumber, into sleeping. It makes him lazy. It brings him to have a separation between him and God. And where there's things like havoc or danger or threats, he's completely unaware of what's going on in his own life. And this is a huge image here in the book. And it seems ridiculous to us. You can imagine like, okay, there's a storm everywhere and this, the boat's going up and down and going crazy and the sailors are praying and they're throwing their cargo out and this guy's sleeping. 
Can't imagine that, right? Can't imagine somebody can sleep through all this. But there's more going on than this. This is an image of sin and what's happening to him inside spiritually. And so who suffers as a result of Jonah's spiritual apathy? Who suffers as a result of Jonah's spiritual apathy? Who's suffering? Remember, where's Jonah? How's he doing? He's great, right? He's sleeping like a baby. Who is suffering because of Jonah's spiritual apathy? Everyone around him, right? The sailors are suffering. This is very, very important, very insightful to think about. In other words, his sin includes selfishness. He knows better than God, or he thinks he knows better than God, and knows better than everyone else, and he acts accordingly. God wants him to go to Nineveh, he doesn't want to, he knows better to do that, he goes another way. And this leads him into a state where he's totally unaware of the people around him. Even though he's the one bringing ruin to their lives, and he's become sort of this wrecking ball in their lives of the people all around him. And he's unaware and dulled by this apathy. And he's totally unself-aware that this is taking place. An amazing picture of the nature of sin and the consequence in our own lives. This is only one story, one passage among many in, in the Bible that highlight this. And actually we hear this as people who live in the West and we're like, this is kind of weird. Because our view of morality in the West is very, very individualistic, okay? Individual-centered. We're raised in this culture that sort of says, your moral decisions, your moral compass, is kind of like, choose your own adventure. As long as you don't hurt anybody, you don't do anything to anybody, you can kind of do whatever you need, right? It's morally permissible. And sort of let your conscience be your guide. That's kind of the way that the culture operates. And so then you get concepts, really crazy concepts. Like if you hear the, the saying that says like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What does that mean? Right? It means that it doesn't matter really what I do as long as it's only affecting me. Right? It doesn't matter. There's no other consequence outside of me. It's a private decision. It doesn't involve anybody else. Nobody else is hurt. And so we have this very privatized, individualized, moral worldview. And what the Bible does, you don't even have to really be a believer in God to agree with this. What the Bible trying to teach us is, and what Jonah wanted just exposes this. It shows us that how naive and simplistic this idea is. The Bible gives us an account of how human decisions and our moral decisions, how they affect other people. And they're very profound and very sophisticated. So you have to respond to this sort of idea. You have to say, you know, every moral decision that I'm making, every moral decision that I'm making, and every moral decision that Jonah is making, is just one little brick of a huge wall. And that wall is sort of forming who I am as a person and who I have, or what I have as my character. And you're trying to say to me that a thousand little moral decisions isn't eventually gonna form you into the kind of person who, if you're making a thousand bad moral decisions, small moral compromises, eventually you're gonna reach a thousand bad decisions that will spill over 
into the, out of the walls of my life and into the walls of somebody else. It's naive for us to think that our own decisions only affect me. Our lives are much more interconnected than that. And you can see this. So what Jonah wanted and is trying to tell us is that Jonah's decisions are not just his own decisions. How does a person get to become sort of a person who's a wrecking ball in the lives of others? It's because he's so checked out. He's so self-absorbed. He's not even aware that he is the source of ruin in other people's stories. That's the tragedy of him sort of falling asleep at the wheel spiritually and morally and actually physically. And actually, it gets, it gets even worse when you read uh, in, in verse, verse 6. You can see, so the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. He's saying, I hope, the captain is saying what? You should pray so that maybe God, your God would pay attention to you. Is Jonah's God paying attention to him? He definitely already is paying attention to him. That's why he's in the problem that he's in. Does Jonah's God notice him? Yes, of course. And this is sort of ironic in a lot of ways because Jonah is a prophet. He's the one who's received the, the word of God before. And he has to be reminded to do something as simple as pray. And by who? By the captain, by this pagan, by this polytheistic sailor who doesn't know anything about God. He's like, well, you know, call on your God, I'll call on mine, we just need to do something. So you can see the sailors, they say, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know for those for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what of people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So people are confused. They don't know why this is happening. And they decide, okay, we're going to cast lots to figure out. Maybe there's an unknown God. And he's going to reveal to us what's going on. And it works. They cast lots and who wins or loses the, the lot or the lottery? Jonah. So they ask him, you know, tell us your story. Tell us what's going on. What kind of work do you do? Which is funny. It's like, what, what, why does he ask him, what do you do for a living? What does that have to do with, <laughs> with anything? But they're just trying to kind of sort of find an answer. They're so alert and aware to what's happening. Where's your country? What people are you from? And what is his answer? Look what he says. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Remember when I said before last week, when I said that this, this uh, story or this book in the Bible has like satire, it's supposed to be like, make, there's like funny things in it. This is a joke. When Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Does Jonah fear the Lord? No, Jonah doesn't fear the Lord. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, but he doesn't fear the Lord at all, right? You don't fear God. If you really feared God, you wouldn't be asleep, right? This is sort of the height of religious hypocrisy. If you feared him, you wouldn't have run away. You don't fear him at all. So then we read this and we think to ourselves, I cannot believe Jonah, right? 
can't believe anybody would actually behave in this way. I'm sure that I would never behave this way. And then that minute when you say, I'm sure I will never behave in this way, that's when you fell into the trap of the story, exactly what the point of the events of this book in the Bible is about for us. So I think to myself, I've never had a contradiction between what I say I believe and how I actually live. Are we really superior to Jonah? I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. He's lying. Right? He doesn't fear the Lord. And we think to ourselves, man, why does he talk like that? But how often do I say, I'm a Christian, and I don't act in that way at all? Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they were terrified. They were very afraid. And they asked, Oh my goodness, I can't believe what you did. They knew, the sailors knew or found out that he was running away from God. So they're like, okay, well, he's running away from God. Uh, this person that, they, that he worships, he's running away from. And actually you told us in the verse right before that this God that you are running away from is the God of who made the sea and the dry land, right? So he's important, he's powerful. He's the one who has control over what we're running into, the problem that we're going towards. So they're afraid. This is one of the most, like the biggest ironies of the passage or the, the events of this chapter. And actually, we can see this even in the Bible at large. It's often the people who are supposedly completely outside the people of God who can see on full display sort of the deep contradiction between what God's people say they believe and how they actually behave. What people say they believe and how they actually behave. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. This is, this is also amazing. There's two ways to look at this. The sailors say, what should we do? And what does Jonah say? He says, throw me in the sea. There's two ways to look at throw me in the sea. And there's commentaries that say both sides. If I want to look at Jonah in a positive way, I could say, Jonah is saying to them, you should sacrifice me for the good of the ship, right? Just throw me over and the ship will be okay so that you guys can save your lives. If you want to be a little bit more cynical, you can look at it and say, Jonah is still trying to run away from God so badly that he would prefer to die than find his way to Nineveh. And how do we know that to be true? Actually, in the end of the book of Jonah, he says, I would rather die, I'd rather be dead than do what I did, preach to the people of Nineveh. And the author really doesn't, the, the book in the Bible doesn't really explain really why does Jonah say these things. So the, the sailors, they sort of look at this and they think about it, and they're like, that sounds like a terrible idea, right? He says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. So they're trying hard to avoid this idea. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, do not, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and took vows. It's amazing what happened to these sailors. They say, please God, don't let us die for taking this man's life. We don't want to, it's his idea. So then they take Jonah and they throw him overboard and the sea grows calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, right? The men feared the Lord exceedingly. Who was the person who said they feared the Lord? Jonah, right? He said, I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord. Who are the people who actually fear the Lord? The sailors. The sailors are the one who actually fear the Lord. And then what did they do after they, after they feared the Lord? I offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. If they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, how did they do that? Sacrifices is like a burnt offering, right? They had to burn something. Are they going to do that on the ship? Probably not. It doesn't seem very safe. So they landed. They found a place to offer a sacrifice to God and they offered a sacrifice to Him. And they dedicated their lives to Him. They took vows. They dedicated their lives to God. It's amazing. They become dedicated followers of the Lord. So something happened inside these sailors, despite the very bad, hypocritical behavior of God's people in this story, of Jonah in this story, God is still capable of bringing people to Himself. But does that give us the right or the license to go and behave like Jonah? Of course not. That should be not the last thing that we should take away from the story. Because not only will it go badly, but it will go badly also for us. And it's going to go badly for the people who you become sort of a wrecking ball in their lives for, like Jonah was. So, but here's the big tragedy in the chapter. Is you have God's own prophet, his own covenant person. He's so tuned out, he's so apathetic, he's so asleep because of his sin. He's not even aware of the fact that all these other people around him are totally alert. And they're alive, and they're listening to God, and God's doing amazing things in their lives, right around him. And he can't see it. He's so turned in on himself, in his things that are going on in his life, so he misses being a part of this conversion of the sailors around him. He's totally tuned out. I can't think of a more accurate description or depiction of spiritual apathy, spiritual slumber that could look like in us. It's this basic idea that somehow I've been baptized and I'm orthodox and I may take communion so I can basically live however I want and I'm still good. And so what you end up with is this whole culture of people full of people like Jonah. And they can tell you all kinds of theology, just like when Jonah said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, right? You know, I say, you know, I can tell you a lot of theology. You know, I fear God. He's the one who made heaven and earth and everything inside of it. And you can never respond, yes, absolutely. That's great, good theology. But there's a deep contradiction between what Jonah says and how he actually lives and the choices he makes. Everybody can see the hypocrisy. Everybody can see how he's acting differently than what he professes, except for him. And so it's a tragedy because not only does he miss out on what God wants to use him for, but he's withering away himself as a human being. He's totally kind of focused on himself. So it sort of makes us ask a question, what's the resolution? What do we do? How is Jonah going to wake up? How is Jonah going to wake up? What's going to happen? 
If you go to the next line, I didn't put it in the slide, but the next line is that the Lord provided a fish to swallow up Jonah. If you can imagine, if the book of Jonah ended after this one chapter, is this a happy ending or a sad ending? Sad ending. Tragic ending. You have the protagonist, the, the main character of the story, the person who is supposed to be the man of God, and he's not that great of a person, and he kind of goes down and dies tragically. And maybe some other people may have goodness happen in their lives or whatever, but the rest is tragic. It's not a good thing to be swallowed up by a huge fish, right? Swallowed by a huge fish, that's what happens. So we're thinking Jonah and the belly of the fish is not a good thing. But then all of a sudden, a surprise from inside the fish that we'll get into a little bit next week, Jonah all of a sudden is very awake. In the fish, he's very awake, very alive, very alert to what God is doing for him. And he'll be composing this beautiful Hebrew poetry from inside the fish. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. He thinks his life is over and he's wiped off from the face of the earth. And it might be true if you were dealing with any other God, but not our God. Our God is merciful and compassionate. He wants to wake up Jonah from his sleep. And right when he's in the worst part, where he seems like death is going to swallow him up, that's where he puts his hands up and he says, I can't do anything anymore. I have nowhere else to go. All of a sudden, that's the moment when God uses this instrument of death, this fish, as sort of a weird vehicle for mercy and for grace to give him life, to give him a second chance. So now you're starting to see some of the parables, uh, the, the parallels between Jonah and the message of the gospel. Can you see why our Lord Jesus Christ, he talked about this moment in the story to describe himself in Matthew chapter 12, right? The Jewish leaders are talking to him. He says, show us a sign. Who do you think you are? You think you're the Messiah? And our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of Jonah. Okay, well, what does that mean? Why does he say that? Just like Jonah. Is he going to be swallowed up by a fish? Three days, three nights? So he says, I'm going to be in the grave three days, three nights, and I'm going to die. So our Lord Jesus Christ sees this moment of God sort of trapping his people in death because of their sin and rebellion. The moment that they can't go further and get any worse, they couldn't possibly get any worse, our Lord Jesus Christ meets them right there. And as we're going to see, like next week, pushes them to repentance. And all of a sudden, this moment of death has turned into new life. A chance for a new beginning. And our Lord Jesus Christ says, yes, that's what I'm going to do. So our Lord Jesus Christ lives as sort of an anti-type of Jonah. He's the very opposite of Jonah. He was completely, if Jonah was completely self-centered, our Lord Jesus Christ was completely others-centered, self-giving, aware of the people around him and their world. He is God becoming human to be the kind of human that you and I couldn't be. And what happens? We murder him collectively as a, as a human race. We're responsible for this world being the way that it is. And so our Lord Jesus Christ absorbs or takes all of this into himself. He takes all of our sin, all of our apathy, and all of the ruin that it causes in the world, and he takes it for us. And somehow, strangely, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes the thing that turns 
upside down and becomes a vehicle for life. In His love, God conquers our sin. He conquers death itself. And in our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection, we grab onto Him and we can actually experience the resurrection and the second chance with Him. And all of a sudden, like Jonah when he's in the whale, he realizes, I was supposed to be dead. And now I'm alive. So my life doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to God. And it's the same thing. Christ is saying, I gave you new life. So that new life doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to God. So how does Jonah end up waking up spiritually? What does it take to wake up Jonah spiritually? Actually, this is not the right question. Jonah doesn't do anything to wake up spiritually. Something is done to him for him to wake up. All he does is he sits at the bottom of the sea, reflecting on a thousand decisions that made him this sort of hypocritical man. And he throws up his hands and he says, you know what, I give up. I've made my life a complete mess. And right at the moment where he feels like he is about to meet his own death, that becomes the place where God meets him and gives him a second chance at life. So Jonah doesn't necessarily do anything to wake up. God's mercy happens to him. He puts him in the position to be woken up. And he becomes awake, maybe for the first time in this book. If we are living our Orthodox faith correctly, we are supposed to be a community of people that are trying to wake up to the fact that God has done something special for us. To recognize that I'm helpless. And God can still work with this helplessness. This is what happened with Jonah. He sort of just throws his hands up and gives up. Many of us, we see ourselves in different moments of the story of Jonah. Maybe in the contradiction between what we say and what we actually do. The way that we may be aware of it or maybe not aware of it. But we are sort of wrecking balls in the lives of the people around us. And we may be totally ignorant of this fact. And so this is what it means. It's just sort of the person, Jonah, is finally coming to God and he's saying, I'm, I'm asleep. I've been asleep. I haven't been paying attention. I don't know what to do. I know that I've messed up. But now I'm coming to you in repentance. And we'll see next week what that repentance looks like. But for now, I should think to myself, to pray earnestly for God to wake me up to open my eyes, for us to get outside of our own heads, to realize what we've done with our lives, that realize that maybe those one brick by brick of those thousand small decisions and small compromises have begun maybe to affect me, begun maybe to affect those around me. Maybe I've become selfish, maybe I've become self-centered, thinking only about the things in my life. This is what happened to Jonah. But God is working to wake you up the same way that he worked to wake Jonah up. We just have to be aware. So we ask this prayer that God can open our eyes like He opened the eyes of Jonah. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
Jesus, grant us your peace, render unto us your peace, and forgive us our sins, for yours, glory, the honor, the dominion, and from the of all ages. Amen. O Lord, make us worthy, pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but the rest of the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, the last kingdom, power of the and now the love of God the Father, who is only begotten Son, our Lord God, and Savior Jesus Christ, give the flesh of the Holy Spirit be with you. All those who wish to go may go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. And with your spirit.